So we're continuing in Revelation chapter 19. We're going to cover verses 6 through 9, which talk about Christ and his bride, the church. And as Jesus usually does, he uses something in the natural to explain something in the spiritual. And so he's going to use, but it's not just in this passage, but it's throughout the New Testament, the natural Jewish wedding ceremony, or I should say the, you know, the earthly Jewish wedding ceremony and all the procedures they have, which is really quite beautiful. And then he applies it to, or the scriptures apply it to, the church. So marriage, overall, is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. And that's why marriage needs to be held in such high esteem amongst Christians. And we need to look after and protect it because it represents our relationship with God. It's sacred. So I'll pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you for another opportunity to dig into your word. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will teach us. Lord, your Holy Spirit is the only one who can teach us. And you teach us as we get into your word. You reveal things to us as we read it. So teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm just going to read Revelation 19, 6 through 9. And it says this, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters, and as a sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. It's like Jesus says in John, Truly, truly, I say to you. So in verse 7 there, it says, For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So, quite basic. The church is the bride, and Jesus, the lamb, is the groom. So the New Testament describes the church as the bride of Christ. Now, it's saying here that it takes time for the bride to get ready. It says she has made herself ready. And that's, again, you go back to the natural, and brides do take a long time to get ready. (laughs) So what are we doing in heaven getting ready for our marriage, which we'll find out happens at the end? Well, it's the judgment seat of Christ, and you're thinking, well, that's not so good. I thought I might be getting a beauty treatment, but no. It is a kind of beauty treatment, really, because what it's doing is getting rid of all those things that shouldn't be there. So we'll go into that in a minute, but just for starters, the Bema seat, it comes from the Olympics. If you compete in the Olympics, you're judged according to the rules and you get your gold medal or your silver medal or your bronze medal, you know, and it's a reward judgment. It's not a judgment on condemnation. That comes later. So if you're taking part in this judgment, it means you won't take part in the Great White Throne judgment which is the judgment of condemnation. And that's the one where you get sent to the lake of fire. So as Christians, we don't go to that one. We go to the Bema Seat judgment. It's the judgment of rewards. Now, why do we need to get ready? Is because we can't be ready until our works are judged. Remember Jesus says in the New Testament that you have to give account for every word, every idle word that you say. So every believer must stand before Jesus and our works will be judged, okay? Now, the scriptures that talk about this are 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. So, and then there's, after this, there's another one, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. So I'll read the 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 to 11 first. So whether... We are here in this body, or away from this body. Our goal is to please Him, that is God. 
Why? Well, the answer is in verse 10. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please Him. So whether dead or alive, our purpose for living is to please Him. That's why God made us, to give glory to God, to bring glory to God. And we must all stand before Christ to be judged. This is something we need to remember. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Verse 11, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Because we understand our fearful responsibility, we have to stand before God. Okay? A lot of Christians, I think, just, oh, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, my sins are forgiven. Hang on. There's more to come. And as we go through today, I'm going to hopefully impress on you the importance of this and the value of living for the Lord in the here and now because it has eternal consequences. So remember, we have to give account of everything we do, say, and think. Now, let's go to the beam of seat judgment, as it's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. It says, Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. So the foundation is the gospel. But whoever is building on this foundation, that is, the gospel of grace, must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. So there's only one foundation, right? So we'll all get to heaven as believers, or we're saved by grace through faith, yeah? However, we build our lives, okay? In verse 12, it continues. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. Notice as each builder. The fire will show if a person's work has any value or merit. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. That's pretty scary, isn't it? If the work is burned out, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. We've talked about this before. The idea of being a bit smoky, <laughs> smelling like smoke in heaven, because you know you, you might have spent your Oh, I might have spent my whole life living for myself, and when I get there, there's nothing to show for it. I'm just going, oh man, I've got nothing. Whereas other people have put a lot of effort into their relationship with God, and they've got a lot to show for their time down here. So the idea is we build on our salvation, the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Again, the gospel is the foundation of our faith and is the only access to heaven and eternal life. However, there are two types of building materials, the temporary and the eternal. The temporary is the wood, hay, and straw, and the eternal, the gold, silver, and the precious jewels. So the gold, silver, and precious jewels represent what we do out of a love for Christ and by faith. It will last for eternity, and we will receive reward in heaven for those things. But everything we do in this life that is not of faith that is done with selfish motives, will be burned up, be destroyed. And yet, though I may smell like smoke, I will still be in heaven. So, just want to remind you, as we talk about this judgment, that the new covenant promises are unconditional. Our sins have been washed away. They have been taken as far as the east is from the west. Okay, so don't fear. It's not your salvation we're talking about now. It's your reward, okay? So, let's step back, and I just want to get the big picture again, where this all fits into the tribulation and the timeline. So, the rapture takes place before the tribulation begins, and after the rapture, there's a short 
interludal time period where the Antichrist is revealed and he establishes his base of power, probably the, something like the EU. And from that base of power, he's, he manages to sign or ratify a covenant with Israel guaranteeing their protection for how long? Seven years, yeah. So the moment that covenant is signed, that seven-year peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist, it officially starts the seven-year countdown. The last seven of the 490 years allotted or decreed for Israel in Daniel 9, 24-27. So I'm just going to quickly go over that. Remember, the clock started with Israel. I'm going to call it the Israel clock, the prophetic clock. Started with 490 years on it. That's a 77's prophecy in Daniel 9. And it started ticking when the command was given in Nehemiah 2 to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it stopped ticking precisely 483's or 173,880 days later when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and was publicly proclaimed to be the Messiah. And that was predicted in Daniel 9.25. Okay, the Bible is so accurate, it's perfect. Then, as predicted by Daniel in chapter 9, verse 26, the next verse, Jesus was then killed and the temple was destroyed. Then we move on to Daniel 9, 27, and it tells us clearly that the Israel clock, with only seven years remaining on it, will begin ticking or counting down again only when the Antichrist confirms a covenant with Israel for seven years of peace. And then as we know, at the end of that seven years, Jesus comes back. So in the meantime, we are in the church age or the age of grace. So it's during these last seven years that God is dealing with Israel that the church is in heaven. And it's during these seven years that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema Seat judgment, the judgment of rewards. And once that's finished, once we have received the rewards, the bride, the church, has been made ready. And so that's what we're talking about. That's what it means for the bride to be made ready. So at the end of chapter 19, Jesus comes back and puts an end to the Battle of Armageddon and sets up a new world order over which he will reign. And that's called in the scriptures the kingdom of God. And it's referred to as a millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It goes for a thousand years. And we're going to be ruling and reigning with him. And that's where we really enjoy the benefits of our faithfulness to him now. So now let's get into the church as the bride of Christ. So the culture is really important. As I said before, if you don't understand the culture of the passage, the culture behind the passage that it was written in, um, you might not get the right interpretation. So, first century Jewish marriages began with a betrothal period that normally lasted about a year. And during this time, the couple was considered married and referred to as husband and wife, even though they did not yet live together or consummate the marriage. So, these betrothals were legally binding. And, well, for example, if someone died, like the husband died, then the wife was considered a widow, even though she'd never consummated the marriage. And I just want to explain some basics about Middle Eastern or Jewish marriage practices. But it's not just them. It's, I've actually found out when I was researching, it's all over the world that do this, the, the bride price, the dowry, and the gifts given by the groom. So it's a worldwide thing so first of all the dowry so in the Jewish culture and others it's the property or money a wife brings to her husband at marriage so it's what the bride gives to the groom or brings to the marriage and so I've got some scriptural examples here Genesis 24 59 so they sent away Rebecca and their sister and her nurse so that was part of her dowry she got to take her servant with her so that was a gift from her family to her, something that she could use. So it says there, and her nurse. It wasn't Isaac's nurse, it was her nurse, it was her. The nurse belonged to her. And in Judges, chapter 1, verses 12-15, we have Caleb. 
And this is an interesting story. He says, Here's my bride price. I'm going to set my bride price as the defeat of this town in the promised land. I'll just read it. Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa, A-C-S-A-H, in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kereth Sefer. And that is the bride price. Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz, was the one who conquered it. So Aksa became Othniel's wife. Because he paid the bride price, you see. When Aksa married Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. As she got down off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What's the matter? She said, Let me have another gift. You have already given me land in the Negev. Now please give me springs of water too. So Caleb, that's her father, gave her the upper and lower springs. So that represents her dowry. She's marrying this guy who's just defeated this town. He paid the bride price by defeating the town. It's like David having to, you know, get the foreskins of so many Philistines to marry one of Saul's daughters, you know. So the bride price can be anything. But here, this lady is clever and she says, well, I need a bit more of my dowry. I want some fields with water, with springs. You've got stock, you know, agricultural society. Water's important. So that's a very valuable dowry for her to take into her marriage and her family. Another example is 1 Kings 9.16. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Giza and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon's wife, the princess from Egypt, bad move, but he did it. She was given a dowry by her father, Pharaoh, of a whole city. So the dowry also depended on the the wealth of the parents. So we come to the bride price now. In Bible times, as well as now, there is a bride price, and it's paid by the groom to the bride's father. And its purpose is to recompense the bride's family for the loss of their daughter and to provide for the bride if the husband died or if he divorced her. So here are some examples of the payment of the bride price. So in Exodus 22.16, it says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to anyone and has sex with her, he must pay the customary bride price and marry her. Because she's not a virgin anymore. It's very difficult for her to get married. And then there's Hosea, chapter 3, verse 2, the famous story of Hosea marrying the unfaithful lady, the prostitute. And he says, So I bought for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one-half homers of barley. So <laughs> the bride price for this prostitute that God asked him to marry was 15 shekels of silver and one and one-half homers of barley. Now, the groom would also give gifts to the bride. And here we have this in Genesis 24, verse 50 to 53. And this is Abraham's servant going back to Haran to Abraham's family and looking for a wife for his son Isaac. Okay, So here they are, the servant, the unnamed servant there, has seen Rebekah, and he recognizes that this is the one that God has chosen through a series of answered prayers. So I'll just read from verse 50 in Genesis 24. This is Laban speaking. The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. So Rebekah is going to be Isaac's wife, Isaac being the son of Abraham. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing and gave them to Rebekah. Now that's the gifts to the bride. He 
He also gave precious things to her mother and her brother, and that's the bride price. So he's compensating the family for the loss of their daughter because her daughter is going to be marrying Isaac and she wouldn't be working as part of the family. So we have the gifts given to the bride and we have the bride price given to the family. So, summary. In biblical times, the bride price, whereby the groom brought his wife from her father, was the accepted practice. It was customary that the groom gave the bride gifts and that she bring certain property to her husband's home upon marriage, which is a dowry, and that could include slaves, cattle, real estate. Now, let's go through the New Testament and just have a look at a few references. We can't look at them all today. It's, it's too much. So just some of the main ones. There's some really important New Testament passages that show that the church is the bride of Christ. And we have to remember, as is different to Israel, they are called the wife of Christ. But we're called the bride of Christ. And the reason is that we're pictured today as a betrothed or engaged bride who has not yet joined by marriage to a husband. Like we're married, but we haven't had the marriage yet. We're not intimate. We haven't, we're still separate. That first part of the marriage process where the contract has been made, but we're not yet in the presence of our husband. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 talks about the betrothal. And this is Paul talking about the Corinthian church. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed, and today we might say engaged, you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste, that's pure, holy, without defect, virgin to Christ. So those who are saved, those who the Holy Spirit convicts, woos and invites, those who respond to the Holy Spirit's work, they are espoused or betrothed to one husband at the moment they were saved or born again. And it's interesting here that the purpose of this betrothal engagement is so that the church will eventually be presented as a pure virgin to Christ. And this means that there's going to be a process of sanctification. So we might look at ourselves and go, well, I'm not pure. <laughs> How can God call me pure and beautiful? But that's the process that he's going to put us through. And that's how he sees us. And the process of sanctification is talked about in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. So this is how Jesus is maturing his bride, the church. So Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus loved the church and proved his love by dying for her. And his purpose was not just to save us. We already know that. But here is talking about the process of sanctification. His purpose in dying for us was to cleanse us. He didn't just die for us and let us wallow in our sins. No, he wants to restore us back to that relationship that Adam and Eve had before the fall. That perfect relationship, that perfect love relationship. He's going to set us apart for a relationship with him. Now, this is a, uh, looking at the verbs and stuff in the, in the text, it's a continual or ongoing washing or cleansing in the water of the word. Now, the means is by the word of God. This is why the church needs to hear the word of God. This is why it needs to be taught. Because this is how we are changed. This is how we are transformed into the image of Christ. So overall, the Holy Spirit is working in the church so that the true church, the true believers, are slowly being conformed to the word of God 
And uh, as we hear it, as the Holy Spirit teaches us, we are changed to be like it. And of course, that is the image of Christ. That's what it's all about. And just to want to point out here, the water in this passage is not water baptism, but a description of the Word of God in its cleansing ministry. And we can have a practical application here. Husbands, it's your job, my job, to wash our wives with the water of the Word and cleanse her, just like Christ does the church. And that's one of the most important responsibilities that a husband has. So I just want to point out what some of these words mean. So without spot means no visible defilement. Without wrinkle means no evidence of age or corruption. And holy and without fault is no evidence of sin. So we can go through life and we can do some dumb stuff. And we can be defiled. But in God's eyes, there is no visible defilement. We're completely clean. And you know people who um, smoke and drink a lot, they age very quickly, and or drugs, whatever. But you know what? Despite the effects of sin, we're going to be seen as young and beautiful. No evidence of age or corruption, and no evidence of sin. So that's how God sees us. Just remember that. Now we come to the marriage and the marriage supper, and we'll come back to Revelation 19, 6-9. So he's just reading those verses again. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters, and as a sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So here it gets a bit tricky. It says the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if you remember in that video that we watched before the service, there was the marriage ceremony where they drink the wine and then they would have the time of intimacy. They didn't mention that in the video, but it mentions it in the scripture. And they'd have the seven days of intimacy so the bride would be secluded she'd be out of the picture for seven days and then the marriage supper was when all the friends and family come along and they have this massive party that's when the, it really started happening so what I'm going to do now is focus in on the four stages of the Jewish wedding system to understand how this all fits in so we're going beyond Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, beyond the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper. We're going, where does it all start? Where does it finish? Okay? So we can get the big picture of this, because I think it's really important. So the four stages of the Jewish wedding system. It was common then, and it's still used today. And there's four distinct stages. So the first stage is the father of the groom makes the arrangement for the bride and pays a bride price. The second stage is the fetching of the bride. The third stage is the marriage ceremony, and that's the small ceremony. And then the fourth stage is the marriage supper or feast where everyone is invited. So let's have a look at the first stage just quickly. I'm just going to go through each of them very quick, and then I'm going to go more in depth. Okay, So just to help us get ahead around this. So the first stage, the father of the groom makes the arrangement for the bride and pays a bride price. And this could happen before the kids are even born. If I have a boy and you have a girl, uh, <laughs> it could be when the kids are really young. It could be when the kids are three weeks before they're married. You know, oh, let's put my son with your daughter. By the way, son, you're getting married in three weeks. You know, you better hurry up, get that room finished. Now, usually, back then or often, the bride and groom did not see each other until their wedding day. And also the period of time that could transpire or go by between the first and second stage, the father and the groom making the arrangement and having that cup of wine and things like that and paying the bride price and then 
the second stage, which is the fetching of the bride, that could be a long time. The main point here, though, is that from that point on, when the cup has been drunk and the bride price has been paid, the bride is betrothed or engaged to her husband. She is legally joined to him, even though there's been no physical intimacy. And we'll get into the scriptural application to that soon. As I said before, if her husband dies before they consummate the marriage, she is still considered a widow. That's how strong this is. It's not like a modern engagement. This is properly married, but just not consummated. Then the second stage is known as the fetching of the bride. This is how Arnold Fruchtenbaum describes it. He's a Messianic Jew. And in this second stage, the groom would come to fetch her and bring her to his home. And this was often done in accompaniment with a wedding procession. So the bride would meet the groom in the streets after the shofar or ram's horn was blown by the groom. We're going to see some more application to that with the church soon as well. Next came the third stage, which was the marriage ceremony to which only few would be invited. What followed was seven days of rest and seclusion for the bride, and that's where we get our honeymoon from. Because back in that culture, that would be the only time in their life where they could sit back and be waited on and do nothing. Every other time in their life, they'd be working, you know, harvest seeding, harvest seeding, you know, all that kind of stuff, raising kids. This was their little bit of peace and quiet. Seven days of peace and quiet, rest. And then finally, the fourth stage. It's the marriage supper or feast, which would last for as long as seven days. So this is when the bride would come out of her chamber to be revealed, and there would be a huge celebration. So now we're going to go through and have a look and see how all these four stages of the Jewish wedding system are found in the scriptures and are applied to the church. So the church being the bride of Christ. So let's look go back to the first stage. So the father of the groom made the arrangement for the bride and paid the bride price. In this case, the bride price was what? It's his life. It's the blood of Jesus. Jesus gave his life. Now we talked before about the bride price being relative to the ability of the father to pay. So in the case of God, no money would be adequate because he could just make infinite money. So he gave what was most important. He gave the most valuable gift he could, which was the life of his one and only son. Why is that important? Because the more valuable you consider someone, the higher the price you're willing to pay. So we should never doubt our value in God's eyes because God paid the highest value possible for us. And 1 Peter chapter 1, 18-20 says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. So now we're making these connections with the wedding ceremonies and that. The procedure we could put in here. God chose him as your bride price long before the world began. <laughs> so we can't replace that word in the scriptures because the ransom is the right word. And, you know, it applies to everybody in the whole world. But for the church age, we can put that there. We can make that application. Our bride price is what brought us out of our marriage to Satan because we were hooked up with Satan, if you read Romans chapter 7. And God bought us out. Now, at this point in time, 
at this point in history, the first stage has already been completed. Jesus died on the cross. The bride price has been paid. The cup was drunk. We'll find out more about that in a minute when Jesus was having the, the last supper there. And that was basically the agreement. And then he paid the bride price when he died on the cross. He gave his life. He paid the bride price. But in the meantime, the sanctification process by the word of God continues down here on earth. And so we learn through the word who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit through that transforms us into his image. But there's something happening in heaven as well. Remember on that video, the son would go home and start preparing the room on the side of the house? Well, Jesus is doing the same thing. And we read that in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. So while we are waiting, we the bride, are waiting for Jesus to fetch us or rapture us, Jesus is preparing a dwelling for us in heaven. And just like I mentioned before, this follows the Jewish tradition. The son would add on a room to the family home for him and his wife to live in. He was not allowed to go back and fetch his bride until the room was completed. But also, one more thing, the father had the authority to say, go, go get your bride. The son couldn't go when he wanted. It was in the father's authority. The father had that authority to do that. That was a custom. And a difficult scripture for me and probably for a lot of people is Matthew twenty four thirty six. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So, is Jesus God? Does he know everything or is he not? Well, yes, he is. You need to look at the culture. What's Jesus referring to? He's talking about the marriage customs of the Jewish nation there. And the Father was the one who gave the go-ahead to the son to go and get his bride. And that's what this is a picture of here. So basically, yes, Jesus is God. He does know all things. But here, in keeping with the Jewish marriage customs, Jesus tells him that the timing is ultimately up to the Father. And his Jewish listeners would have known exactly what he was talking about because that was their custom and they would have understood. Okay, so now we come to the second stage, the fetching of the bride. We'll see how this fits into the church, move from the natural to the spiritual. So the second stage was the fetching of the bride. So just as a long period of time could transpire between the first and second stages in the Jewish system, so it has been with the church. It's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus paid the bride price, since he shed his blood for us. However, Someday, the second stage will take place when the Messiah will come in order to fetch the bride, his bride, to take to his home. Now, what do we call that today? The rapture, yeah. It's the next event in prophecy that we're all hanging out for as we get closer and closer and all those signs start to converge. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, which talks about the rapture when the church is caught up to meet Jesus in the air. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We, who are still living when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. It's very encouraging words. So we're talking about the resurrection, right? We get our resurrection bodies. So the trumpet call of God, it talks about and with the trumpet call of God. So at this time when the rapture happens, there is this commanding shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Now, if we go across to 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 53, we learn more about this trumpet call. And this also gives us more information about how when we receive our glorified bodies, like it's in an instance, in the twinkling of an eye. So it says this, But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die. So at the moment, basically everyone up to this point has died. Okay? But here it's saying we will not all die. There will be a generation of believers who will not die. They will be snatched up. But we will all be transformed. That literally means we are going to get our resurrection body. It's metamorphosis. It's like a caterpillar goes into the cocoon and comes out a butterfly. We're going to go in, or start going up into the skies of mortal body, and by the time we get there, in the twinkling of an eye, we will have our glorified body. No more old age, no more sickness, no more tiredness. Oh man, I can't wait. Yeah. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Now, some things to notice here. Jesus doesn't come all the way to the earth. We meet the Lord in the air. After the rapture, there will be no more separation because it says in Thessalonians there, we will always be in his presence. It says literally, then we will be with the Lord forever so when we come back down to earth we'll still be with him he'll be on earth with us when the new heavens and new earth new jerusalem he'll be there with us we're never going to be separated again so now i'm going to move to the parable of the ten virgins and this is also quite informative about these marriage customs the jewish marriage customs so reading from matthew 25 verses 1 to 13 Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now did you know that we are vessels? And if we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit in us, right? We can be vessels of honour, not of dishonour. So I just want to point out here that in the context, the oil here is a representation of the, or a type of the Holy Spirit. So the foolish ones were the ones without the Holy Spirit. They were not saved. The wise ones were the ones with the Holy Spirit inside, in their vessel, and they were a picture of someone who was saved. Now, They went out to meet the bridegroom. So just coming back to verse 1 there. They went out to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom didn't come to them. The bridegroom blew the shofar, the horn, and they went out of the house. They heard the horn. They heard the ruckus. And (laughs) off they go to try and find the bridegroom. He'd be waiting somewhere on the outside of the town. Now I'm going to keep reading. I'll start from verse 2. 
Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Okay, so a long time. And we might feel that the bridegroom is delayed, but he will come back. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Wow. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. A very sad picture. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So, let's get some application from this ten virgins parable. First of all, they're waiting for the bridegroom who came at an unexpected time. Well, with the rapture, Jesus comes at a time when we do not know. We don't know the hour or the day. The bride had to go out and meet the groom. Well, just like the rapture of the church, we meet Jesus in the air. The wise had oil in their vessels, and this represents the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or down payment of our salvation. I won't go through those verses now, but they're listed in your notes. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 5, verse 5, and Ephesians 1, verse 14. So basically, if you're not sealed, you're not saved, and you'll miss the rapture. If you're not sealed, you're not saved, and you'll miss the rapture. That's what it's saying. Those who miss the rapture, that is all the unbelievers, Jew and Gentile, will go into the seven-year tribulation. Now, there is, I believe, a second chance for salvation because it says in the book of Revelation that there's going to be a multitude of people from all tribes, tongues, nations and peoples who will be saved, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So, there will be people saved in the tribulation, but they will be, most of them, martyred. So it's not a good time to be a believer in the tribulation. Much better to avoid it. And Jesus gives us this warning in Luke chapter 21, verses 34 to 36. He says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. Isn't that awesome scripture? Watch therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. The day of the Lord, that day is referring to the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, it's always referring to the tribulation, okay, the seven-year tribulation. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape. And we've read before in Revelation chapter 3 the evidences for the rapture being before the tribulation. Well, this is another one. We can escape these things and we'll stand before the Son of Man. Where is the Son of Man right now? In heaven, we will stand before the Son of Man in heaven. Now, how are we counted worthy? Is it by reading the Bible for three hours every day? And if you miss one day, you're not worthy? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's only by his blood we are counted as worthy. We need to receive our pardon, the forgiveness of our sins. And also, one more thing, Jesus says, believe and... What's the R word that most churches don't want to talk about? Repent. You believe and repent. Okay, It's not enough just to know it. You need to act on it. So it also says in the parable of ten virgins that we don't know the day 
nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So the Father could give the command for Jesus to collect his bride at any time now. It's up to the Father to give the command and then Jesus will come. So basically, the rapture, once that happens, it's the second stage of the Jewish wedding feast completed. The bride price has been paid and now the bride has been fetched or taken up to heaven. Now we come to the third stage of the marriage ceremony, which will take place in heaven just prior to the second coming of the Messiah at the end of the tribulation. So here's a small group of people. When I say small, it's not small. It's the whole church. And the angels. So let's read Revelation 19, just verses 6 through 8. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunders, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be exceedingly glad, and let us give the glory to him. Why? Why will this be exceedingly glad? For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. So now we're coming back to this thing about the wife making herself ready. And it was given unto her that she should array herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So the wedding announcement will be made and the bride will finally be made ready. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say what we're going to look like. You know, we are wearing the, the clothes of righteousness. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. But we're going to have something else as well. I'm not sure what it is. It could be different crowns. It could be another garment put on top. I don't know. But we're going to be wearing something which is going to constitute our bridal gown, okay, so to speak. And it's called, or it's described as, the righteous acts of the saints. So this teaches us two things. First, it shows that the process of sanctification will be completed, or at that time would have been completed, because all that is showing on the bride, all that is left, is her righteous acts. Everything else has been burnt away. And secondly, this also shows that the marriage ceremony takes place after the judgment seat of the Messiah when the saints are rewarded for the deeds on earth. And we read that before in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. All the wood, hay and stubble will have been burned away and all the gold, silver and precious stones will have been purified. Now, come back to the dowry. This is like our dowry, our gift to Jesus. So, when we get to heaven and we go through this beam of seat judgment, this judgment of reward, then what I have left that has passed the test is what I bring into my relationship, my marriage with Jesus. So what I will have to offer Jesus then will depend on my faithfulness now to use the gifts and talents that God has given me for his glory and not my own. So if I'm living for myself down here on earth, I'll have very little to show for my life. I'll have very little to offer Jesus, very little to bring to the relationship. My faithfulness to choose to love God will be rewarded. And it seems that we will literally wear our reward. So as I was saying, I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but you get a, a few clues in the scriptures. So Daniel 12.3, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And of course the opposite you can assume to be true too. Those who are not wise shall not shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who do not turn many to righteousness will not be like the stars forever and ever. So all believers, I believe, are wearing a clean and bright wedding garment, but some will be brighter or more glorious than others. Does that make sense? Yeah. So as far as his dowry, think of it this way. Jesus has invested so much into this marriage. He is crazily in love with me. How much do I love him? How much am I willing to invest into my marriage with Christ? What dowry will I present to him?
How much gold, silver, and precious stones will I present to him on that day, which represent my righteous acts? So, remember, this is a forever thing. Now, the fourth stage, the marriage supper or feast, where everyone is invited. And it's described in Revelation 19, verse 9. And it says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Since many are invited to come to the marriage supper or feast, this passage indicates that the marriage supper or feast will be at a different place than the marriage ceremony. Okay, now, getting into a bit of other stuff here. The Old Testament saints, when are they resurrected? Well, it's after the tribulation. The tribulation saints, when are they resurrected? I believe after the tribulation. So, how do we know? Daniel 12, chapter 2 tells us that at least we know the Old Testament saints will resurrect after the tribulation. John the Baptist is interesting, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Remember, he died before Jesus. John the Baptist was beheaded before Jesus died and rose again. Okay, He was the last of the prophets of the Old Testament. He called himself a friend of the bridegroom. He didn't call himself a part of the bride of Christ. He's a friend of the bridegroom. He's going to be one of those people who are going to be rejoicing with the bride, but he's not the bride. He's one of the many who will come and who have been invited to attend the marriage supper on earth. So I believe that the marriage supper, this fourth stage, will be on the earth. The marriage will be in heaven. We'll have our intimacy up there with Christ. We'll be secluded, away from everybody, resting. And then when we come back, that's when the marriage supper takes place. And there's a scripture in the Old Testament which I believe kind of confirms this. It's Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 10. It says, In Jerusalem, on this mountain, in the original, but in context it's Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, The Lord is our God. We trusted in him. And he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. For the Lord's hand of blessing will rest on Jerusalem. So, basically, I won't go through it all now, but in the period between the end of the tribulation and the start of the millennial reign, there's a, a number of days there, and there's a few events that happen, including the judgment of the unbelievers and believers, both for the nation of Israel and for the Gentiles once that's finished then there's only believers left and that's why it says here all the people for all the people of the world so the only people who are left at the start of the millennial reign are believers and so basically this is like a party that initiates the millennial reign, I believe. So it happens after the end of the tribulation. You've got the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25, where the unbelievers are cast into Hades or hell. And then the new temple is built. Jesus sets the earth up for his rule and reign. And then we have the start of the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and I believe it starts here with this marriage supper of the Lamb. So this, this massive feast, this massive party. So this is, yeah, it's amazing. And that's why it says in Revelation 19 verse 9, just coming back to that, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because 
If you're there, it means you are saved. You didn't get cut off because you weren't a believer and cast into hell. Because only believers go into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And one more thing. Another scripture that gives us great insight into the marriage customs is Luke 22, 14-20. And this goes back to the bride price and the signing or the confirming of that covenant at the very start, the first stage. It's quite interesting. So it's Luke 22, 14-20. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And what's the kingdom of God? The millennial reign. He is going to eat of it in the millennial reign, the kingdom of God. So I'll just go through it again. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. All right. So the next time Jesus eats this meal with them will be at the feast. And it will be in the kingdom of God, the millennial reign. And continuing in verse 17 of Luke chapter 22. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, another clear reference to the thousand-year millennial reign. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So, those last two verses I just read, This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. That's the contract. That's the marriage contract. The cup of wine, sharing the cup of wine, was a part of the marriage contract. Then Jesus will abstain from the fruit of the vine until the marriage ceremony, the, the feast that comes later. I really like that, eh? He's abstaining from drinking the fruit of the vine until we are there with him at this wedding feast. In the kingdom. It's a fair bit to take in. So we have seven years with Christ in heaven. In seclusion. The beam of seat judgment happens at that time. And at the end we have the marriage. And then we come back with him. We're revealed. And there's the events that happen in the intermediate time between the end of the tribulation and the start of the thousand-year rule and reign, and then we have the marriage feast where everybody joins in and everybody celebrates. And I'm just going to finish with the eternal abode of the bride. This is really quick. Revelation 21, verses 9 to 22, verse 5. I'm not going to read it, but basically just one verse. And there came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls who were laden with the seven last plagues, and he spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So, what does he say in Revelation 21? Did you hear that key word? I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We are now married. All the four parts of the Jewish wedding feast are complete. We are fully married, fully joined to our Lord and Saviour. Jesus Christ. And then, again, we'll get into this in future messages, but in Revelation 21, verses 10 through, right through to the chapter 22, verse 5, there's this beautiful description of the new Jerusalem, which represents, guess who? The bride. So, we better stop there. Or we'll have to finish it next week. So, just think of that. This is really important, I think, to understand. I'll just finish on this concept of the dowry. 
we want to have something to bring into our marriage. We don't want to come empty-handed. That's shameful. So my exhortation for you today is to really think about where your vision is. Is it in heaven or on earth? And think about, am I living for Jesus? Or am I prioritizing my relationship with Jesus? Am I making time to be in his word, to allow him to change me and cleanse me? to be useful for his service or am I just living my life for myself? And when we get there and we go through that beam of seat judgment, we want to be able to keep most of this life because it was done for Christ and have something to give him instead of using this life for ourselves and then having nothing to give him. So I'll pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this Yeah, it's fairly challenging, this whole concept of Jesus being the groom and us, the church being the bride, and the four stages, the bride price, the bride being fetched, the marriage, and then the the marriage feast, the wedding feast. And then coming to the end of the book, and we find that we're called the wife. It's all finished, it's all complete, it's all done. And Lord, we want to be shining like the stars in heaven. And we're not going to be shining just for a little while. We're going to be shining for eternity. So Lord, help us to remember that what we do down here has eternal consequences. Help us to be living a life that pleases you. Living a life and doing things out of love for you, being motivated by love for you, being empowered by your Holy Spirit, controlled by your Spirit, led by your Spirit to do the things that please you. And then we will have eternal reward in heaven and we'll have something to give you for our dowry. So we just uh, thank you for revealing this to us today in Jesus' name. Amen.